All right, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 22. If you don't have one, we should have some in the chair racks in front of you, I hope. If not, raise your hand. Somebody will get you a Bible. Acts chapter 22. We're starting in verse 30, then we're going right into chapter 23, all the way through verse 11. So Acts 22, 30 through 23, verse 11. You guys ever have such a messy kitchen or bedroom that it's so messy you have no idea where to start? Yeah? We have four kids, uh, and they're all messy. Not all kids are messy. I wasn't messy. Well, I was a, my life was a mess as a kid. My room looked serial killer pristine. It looked really good. Maybe that's a sign. Uh, we have four kids, and they like to eat at those... Um, times when you're not supposed to eat. Like we have breakfast and dinner. Uh, they like to eat before and after that. They make stuff, the concoctions, pots, pans, bowls. And uh, they, they, they'll make it to the sink area, but there's no dumping, rinsing, and setting aside. So our kitchen blows up really quick, really fast every day. It's got that lived-in feel. Um, so uh, sometimes it's so bad, like I have no idea what's going on, like how, you know, and so, uh, but it's a kitchen, it's, it's, it's one room, and what I do is I start uh, just piling all the dishes in one area near the sink, and then once all the dishes are over there, I move to the dishwasher, I empty that, and then I start moving, through, and I'm able to accomplish, I can work through the mess, I can accomplish the goal, it's a task, I can, eh, it's a journey, but I can, I can, I can, I can accomplish it, right? I can finish that journey, and it feels pretty good. But some messes are bigger than that, right? Um, some messes are so big, you really have no idea where to start. And in our lives, in our lives, uh, which are oftentimes very messy, they can be so big. The mess can be so overwhelming that you just give up, right? Like some, some problems in your life, like some messes are just, and it, it can be the kitchen, really. It really can be. Like, I just, I just give up. I'm not even going to bother anymore. How do I? And in life, uh, we can be tempted to give up. And I, I want to encourage us away from that and into something special that I think we do see in this passage. Here's the principle, the sermon summary, what I want us to hold on to. We're going to get to this by the end of our time together. And the principle is this, when your life is messy, God is close, listen to him. That's the message. When your life is messy and your life is plenty messy. Uh, some of you have really messy lives. Uh, uh, some of you are, are, maybe you're not. Maybe everything is organized and, it, and you're feeling good and it's a time of peace. Well, if that's the case, then you, you either came out of it not too long ago, or you know you'll hit it at some point in the future. But when your life is messy, God is close, and I want you, I want to encourage you to listen to him. So here's what we're going to do. We'll look at this passage, right? First, we're going to look at the passage. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. And then the second part is we're going to get to the point, right? The point that I want us to really focus in on, that when your life is messy, God is close. Listen to him. Now, we're starting in verse 30 of chapter 22. So if you're new here or you're just new to the book of Acts, let me just give you a very brief, like 30-second summary of what's happening. The apostle Paul was sent by the church to go on a third missionary journey where he preached the the gospel and started churches and encouraged other Christians. And he's come back, that third missionary journey with him and his pals, that's over. He went back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, uh, the church is so, so excited to see him. It's testimony time. It's report time. But 
there's a lot of pushback among his Jewish brothers and sisters. They have been gossiping about him, lying about him, saying things about him that are not true, causing him all kinds of distress. In fact, it got so intense when he tried to address the crowds that he was assaulted. And then he was arrested by the Roman government, even though he didn't do anything wrong. So that's where Paul finds himself now. We've been walking through this. He's had a chance to address the crowds, to begin to speak his peace. And things have been more than challenging. Things have been rather messy for Paul. He's coming off of this amazing ministry tour. And now he is in the mess. So the Roman authorities are investigating because the, the Jewish people are, are really having a fit, right, on the verge of having a little riot over the apostle Paul and him coming back. And so um, they are investigating. And so what they decide to do is they're going to bring the chief priests and the Sadducees, right, the, the Pharisees, they're going to bring the council together. And they're going to let Paul talk to them and them talk to Paul, hoping that they can get to the bottom of all of this chaos, so here in uh, verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. So Paul is no longer in chains, right? Because they've realized Paul's a, not only a, a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. So they've taken off of the, his cuffs, essentially. Uh, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. All right. So who are these guys? Who are the, the chief priests and who, what's the council? The chief priests and the council, these are basically the ruling class among the Jews. These are the elite, the educated, the religious and political leaders of the day. Um, the chief priests really at this point, uh, and we can see this in the book of Acts, many of them are not really functioning in the way that they are designed to function in the Old Testament. And um, the council, the council is what we call the the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin was, a, was a, essentially 70 leaders of the day, right? Again, ruling class men, uh, 70 leaders, and they functioned as uh, essentially the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. So when there's a problem, these are the big wigs, the smart people, right, that are supposed to come in and handle business. So the Roman authorities like, all right, let's, let's get the, the sane, sensible, smart people together. Let's get the Sanhedrin in here. We get the chief priests. All right, bring Paul. Let's just be reasonable. But if you've lived long enough, you know that some people cannot be reasonable. They can't, or they won't. They just won't have it. You can be reasonable. You can be fair. You can be calm. And they just want to rage. Well... Here's the mess getting messier for Paul. Uh, he begins, he, he, he begins to address them in chapter 23, verse 1. He begins to make his case, right? Let's be reasonable. Let me tell you where, who I am, what I'm really about, who I am. 23.1, and looking intently at the council. So Paul is looking at them in the eye. He's not mad-dogging them. He's not giving them the crazy eyes. He's like looking them in the eyes, communicating with them. He's being direct. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's as far as he's going to get. Not very far before somebody goes ham. So he, he's, he's saying, listen, uh, I am innocent of the charges that are being uh, levered, le levied against me. I, I, it's the things that are said about me are not true. And so what he's, he's, he's appealing to his life, which is well known and documented, and he's saying, listen, I live my life before the face of God. Paul says, listen, I live circumspectly. I live 
carefully because not only do I believe God is watching, but that God is with me and that God is for me and that I'll be held responsible for how I live. This, by the way, is why Paul so often encourages all of us to live carefully, live carefully. Look carefully how you live for the day is evil, right? So he says, I live carefully. I live before the face of God my conscience is clear, right? He's saying, like, my, my conscience, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not just pretending here. I, I can do so with a, with a clear conscience. Listen to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what Paul says about his conscience. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Paul says, my conscience is not conflicted. Uh, my, my, my heart is true. Uh, I am innocent in this situation, right? And by the way, when Paul says, my conscience is clear, right, he's not saying that he's perfect. He is saying that he is practicing, Right, that he is pursuing. There's a, there's a difference because a, a person with a clear conscience isn't a sinless person, but a confessing person, a repenting person. A person with a clear conscience is definitely a sinner because you have a conscience and you're not perfect. So the, the, what we're called to here uh, in, in terms of the example of Paul is to be a people who are honest, right? Godly people confess their sins and repent of their sins. They own their corruption. They don't deny it or hide it. Paul says, uh, listen, look at my life. I live before the face of God. My conscience is clear. And in this specific case, right, he's innocent. He's, that's what his bottom line argument is. I am innocent. And as he says this one thing, Ananias rages. Verse 2, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. This is bizarre, like to us. This is so strange if you're looking at this with fresh eyes because this is not where we live. We don't live in the world where you get arrested, you didn't do anything, but you get arrested. Well, I guess that, that does happen, doesn't it? Okay, well, but for, not for most of us, where you get arrested and then, and then you actually, the cops, like the, the authorities are going to strike you? But it actually does happen, doesn't it? It happens. It doesn't just happen in Rambo First Blood, Right? Like, that's an outlier. It seems strange that this would happen, right? You look at this and you're like, well, why is this happening? But we, don't be surprised. It happens. Well, the high priest orders one of, his, one of his buddies to strike Paul in the mouth, punch Paul in the mouth. I don't want to hear this garbage anymore. He's mad. He is angry and he wants to shut Paul down before he even finishes just trying to explain himself. So he's like, just start, start beating him. By the way, you can do some research on this guy, Ananias, high priest, Paul's day. He, uh, he's not a good guy, if you can't tell. Not cool, not chill. He was an angry, cruel man. He had a reputation for it. Nobody liked him. Nobody. In fact, he would be assassinated about 10 years after this. Anyway... Paul, uh, Paul has a response for him in verses three through five. Now, I don't like to do this sort of a thing very often, so this will be, this will be the, probably the first time I've done something like this in this year of preaching, so I'm going to squeak it in before uh, we get out at the end of the year. Speculation time. Just a question to consider. Might Paul sin somewhere in these three verses? 
Now, if you find it weird to even wonder about that sort of a thing, I think your perspective of Paul is weird because Paul was not superhuman. Paul was a sinful human, like you, like me, right? He's no less sinful than you and me, right? Okay, so he does sin. Maybe there is something going on here because this plays out weird. All right, so starting in verse three, it says, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's pretty good. I like that. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So he's basically saying, look, you're a hypocrite. You're saying that I broke the law when I didn't, and then you break the law by ordering me to be struck. But he calls him a whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you. So Paul gets pelted, and he's like, whoa. Paul, he mad. He's not happy. Paul is, Paul is addressing. Now listen, rebuke is good. And what he's saying here, oh, and when he says, God's going to strike you, that was fulfilled, wasn't it, 10 years later when he's assassinated. So Paul issues uh, an insult. That's what it is. It's an insult. He calls him a whitewashed wall. And really, what, what he's saying is, that he's saying, like, listen, you're a wall that has been whitewashed. You whitewash this wall. You paint it white because it looks terrible. It's rotting. It's weak. It could be pushed over. So what, what do you do? Well, you paint it white so it looks good. It looks strong, right? So like if it's, a, if it's a, the kind of wall that would be in your house, right? It's like, well, the, the two-by-fours are, are rotted or they're, they're not properly installed and the, and the drywall isn't hung correctly or there's water damage. Like you could just push your way through it. Or if it's a brick wall, the, the mortar that's supposed to hold it all together has been falling out. The wall is weak. It is untrustworthy. It is dangerous, but it's painted white, so it looks good. Paul says, that's who you are, and God's going to strike you, you hypocrite. That's what Paul says. All right, so Paul's, Paul's mad, and the, res- he, the response is, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Like, who, basically, like, you better chill out and know who you're talking. Do you know who you're talking? You're talking to the high priest? This is where it gets really weird. Paul says, I didn't know. I didn't know that he was the high priest. And for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul knows. He says, here's what's happening. Paul says, oh, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And simply put, most biblical scholars, all that I've read anyway, so I'm just going to say most, uh, all the biblical scholars that I have read on this say uh, there's no way Paul didn't know that that was the high priest. Like, how did he not know? Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was like top gun Pharisee guy, uh, highly educated, educated by Gamaliel. He not only knows uh, the, the, the law and, and, and the traditions, the customs, uh, he, he not only knows politics and poetry and everything else in multiple uh, cities and cultures, uh, he would know who's who in the Sanhedrin at this point. And he doesn't know who the high priest is. That seems weird. So I'm not saying Paul's lying. But some scholars do wonder if in this moment, Paul is sort of like, mm, lying a little bit. Don't know. Don't know. We don't know. And we shouldn't make that case. But it is interesting that Paul is admitting in one breath, yeah, what I said was an offensive insult. And I shouldn't have said it. Because he then says, oh, because the law says so. So his excuse is, I didn't know who it was. And so, uh, you know, I shouldn't have said what I said. It was a hard insult. Uh, for the record, let's just note, it's not wrong to insult people all the time. Sometimes insults are okay. 
Yes. Uh, most of the time, they're not. And in this case, it is at least questionable, if not wrong, for Paul to do what he did. Also note, Jesus was in this very situation where he, the Jewish authorities of the day were arresting him and beating and punching him, and he did not do this, did he? He was quiet. He was humble. He suffered. And, and Paul sometimes does. He suffers well, suffers uh, quietly. In this case, he is asserting his rights, and he makes this insult. In fairness, some people would argue that, well, Paul wouldn't know who this guy was because we think he had eye problems, and his eye problems would have prevented him from knowing who uh, Ananias the high priest was. Um, and I, most of the people that I've read on this would say, yeah, Paul might have been blind, but he wasn't dumb. Uh, he, he would know who is talking to him. He would know what's going on. So here's, here's the, the, the messy part of this, right? Paul is being persecuted for doing what God has called him to do. He's doing what is right. He is loving people. He is preaching the gospel. He is confronting error. And now he is getting slammed for it by the very people that he loves and wants to reach with the gospel. Uh, he is being arrested and even persecuted not only by them, but by Roman authorities as well. And Paul rebukes the high priest. And then he gets challenged. And Paul gives this answer like, well, I didn't know. And then, as messy as this, this is a mess, right? As me who's there to help Paul? In all of this, it gets messier in verses 6 through 10. Look at 6 through 8, because here you see this, now this division comes to the surface in the um, Sanhedrin. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both made up the Sanhedrin. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. All right, we'll stop there. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, these were two groups of religious elites, ruling class people of the day among the Jewish people, and they were both in the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sadducees, the Sadducees are weird, right? Because the Sadducees, they had this high view of the Bible. The Bible is the very word of God. They believed this, and they took it seriously in that uh, if it's not in the Bible, they don't want to hear about it. So tradition, they're not down with tradition. They don't like it. Whereas the Pharisees, they love the Bible. It is the very word of God, but they also elevate tradition to the same level as the Bible. Not good. And yet, the Sadducees are the ones that are getting into real trouble with some of these core doctrinal beliefs. The Sanhedrin, made up of these two groups, is experiencing a division in part because the Sadducees do not believe in heaven or hell. There's no afterlife. When you die, it's lights out and you stop existing. There's just nothing. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in the spirit world, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. These are all pretty core uh, beliefs for our faith. And so the Pharisees affirmed all of this, but they also affirmed tradition. So Paul finds himself now like, oh, wow, they were all fighting, looking at me, but now they're starting to fight with each other because of what I've said. And now he finds himself in the middle of that mess. Paul's in the middle of, a, of another fight. And then in verse 9, Paul gets backed. He gets some support from some people in 
the Sanhedrin. But it's, it, now it makes it look like it's just going to be another political kind of fight, another in-house debate. It's not about Paul being justified or vindicated in their eyes as much as it is, oh, you're just pulling in Paul and backing him now because he's on your side of this debate that we're having internally. Look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this guy. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Like, so they're saying, like, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's relax a little bit. Paul's backed by some. It's really not so much about them finding him innocent as much as it is, oh, he's on our team, so now we're going to support him. You know how it works. And then uh, it gets even messier. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, imagine this, it becomes violent. The tribune, the tribune, he, the, 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 the Roman leader overseeing all of this, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So the tribune's saying, like, look, this is getting crazy. Uh, we still aren't to the bottom of this. Get Paul, bring him back, put him in the barracks. Uh, this, this, things are getting out of hand. So Paul, not yet vindicated, not yet set free, in a, a great deal of chaos and mess. And then in verse 11, we see God in the mess. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God was in the mess with him. Now, I don't know what Paul was thinking. We can't know. We can't know how it felt, but we can imagine that most people in this situation would feel a great deal of stress and anxiety or, or frustration or whatever, certainly feel alone, and yet God stood near him. And then the Lord not only stood near him, but spoke to him, told him to take courage, so he encouraged Paul. And then he, he, pre he prepared him and told him, listen, you're doing what I've told you to do. And so you're going to keep doing it. You're going to Rome. But Paul knows if I'm going to continue to be faithful to God, I'm going to continue to wind up in these messy situations that are difficult and trying. So what he's experiencing in this moment, and it is like an existential experience that is real, God stood there with him. It doesn't mean that God appeared in, in a physical form in this instance. It just means that God was near, and he was near in presence, and he was near, near to empower and to convey grace. And Paul was blessed by it. Paul actually talks about this very event in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can just listen. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul knew exactly what was happening. This is the passage, right? The story. And I want us to consider, I want us to ponder together the point here, at least one of the points, the points that I want us to take home with us, and that is that when your life is messy, God is close. So listen to him. Life gets messy. Now, you guys know what this is like when your life is messy. Some of you are in it right now. I'm in it right now. Life is messy. How do you respond when life is messy? What happens? What's the, what is, I don't mean like, ooh, it's a mess. I mean like it's a mess. 
it's a mess. Like, you can't just clean it up. What's our response? Well, some people, when life is uh, messy, we get scared. Right? That's normal to be afraid, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen, or you know what is going to happen, and you don't want it to happen. Fear is a normal thing. Some people aren't, aren't, don't get afraid. Uh, some people get angry. They get upset. And, uh, and that makes sense, right? Because sometimes, sometimes you're the victim in the mess. Uh, sometimes you're mad at yourself because <laughs> you, you brought it upon yourself. But sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's sorrow, melancholy, like depression. And those are, these are significant experiences that really could paralyze us. My therapist, I got one. Uh, my therapist said that I need to get in more touch, get in touch with my feelings uh, because I haven't... I haven't cried since I was like 11. Apparently, that's not healthy. So, uh, but I tell, like, oh, I feel sadness in my heart. I know what that's like, and I cry on the inside. I think that counts. Less mess. And she says, like, no, no, you really should like experience that because sorrow is an important element, and it should be expressed even in your body. It's kind of the thing you need to express. I'm grateful that my that all of my kids and my boys that they are not afraid to express emotions, even crying when necessary. They're not babies, but uh, they can they they express it properly. I'm very pleased. But some of us get really sad, right? And you just, you cry. Or some people get anxious. That's more my thing. Anxiety is my jam. Uh, anxiety comes really natural to me, where you just get stressed out and overwhelmed, and you feel it on your chest, and uh, it's hard to think or, or move. Life gets messy. These things happen. And when these things, when we're feeling all of this and life is messy, the temptation, right, is to give up because you don't see hope, and you can't find help, or you just don't know. And I, I know that a lot of you are there, or are going to be there soon, and I want to encourage you that when your life is messy, God is close, so please listen to him. I want you to consider just a couple of passages of Scripture. Psalm 145, verse 18 the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord is near, right? But the nearness of God does not necessarily immediately equate to some sort of conveyance of grace because you have to call out to him or you have to listen to him. We'll be talking about that. Or consider Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So this is really important for us. Yes, the Lord is near. The Lord is everywhere. I know the Lord is everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, right? But he is especially close. He draws near to the brokenhearted, to those who are crushed, to those who are calling out to him. He is close. The question is, or at least one of the questions should be, okay, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord is close. Who is the Lord? Are we talking about some generic God character, like Mr. Potato Head, where you just kind of put on whatever attributes you want. That's the American God that most people seem to believe in. They just Mr. Potato Head, a God of their own liking, uh, not in their own likeness, because most people know uh, he can't be like me. He's got to be better than me. Uh, but it's still a God of their own liking. And so they, uh, they create the God, and that's the God that they worship, a God that doesn't actually exist. Who is this Lord? Well, he is the Lord God. He is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He is the Lord, the only true God, yes, the living God. But more specifically, we're 
We're talking about Jesus, the Lord that is close to you, the Lord that stood there with Paul. We're talking, we're talking about Jesus. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, Jesus born of the Virgin Mary who suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven. That Jesus That's who we're talking about. Jesus is close to you, close to the brokenhearted, close in the mess. And who better to minister to those people who are being crushed or who are in the mess than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, one who knows suffering better than any of us He knows suffering, he knows betrayal, he understands and has experienced chaos in his earthly ministry. He knows agony, he knows death, not just his own. I mean, he knows what it is to lose someone to death that he loved so much that he wept upon the death of Lazarus. Even though he was going to raise him from the dead, he, he understands and has experienced all of the messiness of life, of your life. He's experienced all of it. He died and rose and is coming again. This is the Jesus who stands close. That's the Lord. And that's why this is encouraging. That's why this is not some divine, sort of divine being who can consider and imagine what it's like to be in our situation. He knows it. He lived it. All right, so, so what? When your life is messy, God is close. Listen to him. That's the exhortation. Uh, I'm going to give you three words of encouragement, three exhortations very briefly here. When your life is messy, God is close. Listen to him. Number one, I want you to believe that. You actually, I want you to actually believe it. A lot of things we believe, right? Some are core beliefs. Some are secondary, third-tier beliefs, right? Uh, but then there are these things that are core and absolute, right? We're dealing with the, the, the nature of, of God or, or, or Holy Scripture and these things. This is something that is incredibly critical to your faith, your spiritual health, and your ability to persevere through this world, especially when it's dark and messy. When your life is messy, God is close, Now, the reason I emphasize this and say I want you to believe this is because when life is messy, you're tempted to not believe. When life is messy, we are tempted to doubt, to doubt God, to doubt his goodness. We're tempted tempted to doubt everything that matters when it is hard and challenging. And this, this doesn't mean that you will give in to those things, but the temptation is there. We're tempted to doubt. We're also tempted to blame. We will blame other people. And oftentimes, we are tempted to blame God for the situation that we are in. We are even tempted to curse God when life gets that messy. To curse God, right? To to rage at God, to accuse God of evil. But God... God is is the only certain trustworthy being in existence. I mean, I like to think people can trust me, but be careful because I can let you down. We, the best of us will fail. God will never fail. 
He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is true. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. It says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. The encouragement is to believe this truth. And then you might say, like, okay, listen, okay, sounds good. Thanks, Joe. Uh, believe. But the problem is, is I'm not believing right now. I'm struggling right now. I'm doubting right now. So you telling me to believe in the midst of my doubt doesn't really move the needle because I can't just muster it up. It's just not there. What do I do? Okay, I understand. I think we've all been there. You're called to believe. If you're struggling to believe right now, then consider number two. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to him, right? Who, who, who is he next to? Who is he close to? Who does he draw near? To the one who, who cries out, who calls out. Cry out. Now, what does it mean to cry out to the Lord, right? Um, I'll, I'll break it down into three parts, right, really quickly. Number one, ask for help. If you're crying out to God, you have identified your problem. You have identified your need. And now you are going to articulate this. Ask God to rescue you. Take ownership of the problem when it's yours. Plead for mercy, right? You are asking for what you do not deserve, by the way. Keep that in mind. So you are asking for God's help. You are asking the only one who can fix the situation to step in and to give you what you do not deserve, but what you desperately need. Ask for help. The, the, the other part about crying out is appeal to God's character and promises. Because this is where your faith is actually going to be strengthened practically. right? So you're asking for help. Right on the basis of what? His character and his promises. Now, his character, uh, what do we know about God? That he is holy, just, and good. He will not do wrong. He will punish sin, but he can forgive sins through Jesus Christ. We know that he is patient and generous and gracious and kind. He is inclined to give good gifts to his children. Right? So we plead with God based on what we know about him, his character, who he is. Lord, I need your help in this situation because I can't fix it. The mess is too big, so I need you to do what only you can do. And I plead that you would do it in accordance with your nature and character, which I know to be generous and kind and beautiful and loving. Lord, will you help appeal to the promises that God has made to you in his word that he will cause all things to work together for your good? that he will never leave you, never abandon you, that he will always stay with you, that he will strengthen you, strengthen your hands, your heart, your feet, your faith. Cry out. Oh, by the way, third part of crying out, express gratitude. Right now, you might think like, well, how am I expressing gratitude when I'm asking and he hasn't yet delivered? Um, Because you can ask. Be grateful that you can ask. Be grateful that he hears you, that he cares Be grateful that he hears and accepts your prayers and that he is kindly disposed to give you the help that you need. You can give thanks that God will always give you what is best for you, even if it's not what you're asking for. And you better praise God for that. You better be thankful for that because half of the things we ask God for would destroy us if he gave them to us. God knows what's best. So you can thank him for that. Be thankful for that. And be thankful that when he finally does answer your prayer, whether it's yes or no, that it is going to be exactly what you need. So believe this. When your life is messy, God is close. Cry out. Number three, listen to him. (laughs) Listen to him. Again, God is close to the brokenhearted, but you're not going to benefit from his nearness if you're not listening to his voice. You actually have to listen to him. You have to respond to what he has said. You have to take it in. You have to essentially believe it. God speaks. 
He's not going to speak to you in an audible voice that rattles the, the, the windows in your bedroom. Probably. Okay, I would say the probably because you know God might surprise everybody. But God has spoken to us in his word. And by his Holy Spirit, he takes the word that has been written and he, he applies this to our hearts. God speaks today in this book. Listen, when you open up the Bible, when you crack this bad boy open, when you crack open the book and you start reading it, you are not only reading God's word, you are reading God's word for you that day. It is God speaking that day. Not in a purely subjective experiential sense, right? What he has written down is for you. And when you read it, God is speaking, and he is speaking to you. We ought to seek to understand it, seek to believe it, seek to obey it. And so my encouragement here is when life is messy, right, believe that promise that God is with you, cry out to God for help, and listen to him where he speaks. This means two things. Stay in the word and stay with God's people. Got to stay in the word. Or like, I like to say it this way, like, be in the word, right? Um, you can't always be in the word, but you can always have the word in you, right? So read something and hold on to it. Memorize it, hold it in your heart, consider it, meditate upon it, journal about it, whatever it takes for you to hold on to and to hold in the word of God in your hearts because this is what God uses to give us wisdom and to sanctify our character and to give us strength for the day and all of these things. So stay in the word, but it's also critically important that you stay with God's people because I have found over the years in most, not all, but most of those pivotal moments when I hear the voice of God, right, in his word, when I recognize it and when I'm changed and directed by it, it's usually because he brings in another brother or sister into my life to share the word with me. I know a lot of us are like, just me and my Bible. Me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I don't need the church. Uh, you will come to ruin apart from the church. It doesn't have to be this church. We need each other. We will not survive without one another as brothers and sisters. This is why Paul tells us to exhort one another, or the author of Hebrews tells us, right? Uh, exhort one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, is your life messy? My life's messy. God's close, especially close. Listen to him. Just like with Paul, he will give you the grace that you need. And if you are here and you are not a Christian, let me just encourage you, God is close. You might be far away, but God is close. The distance between you and God is really caused by your own unbelief or resistance or pride or arrogance or whatever it is. But Jesus comes close to you, even today, and extends his hands to you and says, take my hands. I love sinners. I save sinners. I came to rescue sinners like you. So come to me. Jesus is close. So listen to his voice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you, uh, would you help us, Lord, Help us to understand the truths of your word that make all the difference in our worlds. We pray, God, that you would help us to make sense of the mess that is in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, if we're in a season where there's not much mess, 
the kitchen's clean and everything's put away. But Lord, we know the mess is coming. And when it does, we pray that we would be sensitive to your closeness, your nearness, that we would listen to you as you speak and that you would give us the strength to hold fast to the Savior who loves us, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and is coming back for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.